ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Today, a feature interview with Susan Kiefel, the retiring Chief Justice of the High Court of Australia. Hello, I'm Damien Carrick and this is The Law Report. The Chief Justice of the High Court of Australia, Susan Kiefel, is retiring on the 5th of November. Appointed to the High Court in 2007, she was appointed Chief Justice in 2017, the first woman to hold the nation's top judicial role. The Chief Justice joins me now for what I understand is her first media interview since 2017. Chief Justice, thank you for speaking to The Law Report. Thank you for the opportunity to speak. Now, the standard pathway into a legal career is graduating from high school with top marks, then studying law at university. Your pathway is very different. In 1969, you left school at age 15 at the end of year 10. Before we get to that decision and why you made it, what what was your childhood like? You were born in Cairns, I understand. Yes, I was born in Cairns and my family moved to Brisbane when I was about five or six. So um, Cairns was a, a small country town then, so it was a very pleasant childhood with lots of bush around and um, and then Brisbane much more suburban. And was your family academic? No, no. Neither of my parents had been to university. My father would have liked to have studied medicine, um, but he was a child of the Depression, so he was denied that opportunity. Now, you decided to leave Sandgate State High School in Brisbane after Year 10 at the age of 15. Why did you decide to do that? A number of factors. I didn't particularly enjoy high school. And there was little encouragement to go on at that point, uh, particularly to girls, I think. And um, there were limited uh, career prospects according to the kind of school guidance that we were getting. So I thought there was probably more opportunities out there that, that you could really only find out about if you went out and worked. And And I think, too, there was the idea of financial independence and self-sufficiency was probably stronger amongst young people at that time than perhaps it is now. So you went to secretarial school at the Kangaroo Point Technical College and you started working in the typing pool of a building society. No, I worked as a secretary. So I was was always one-to-one secretary in a building society and in a for an architect and and then, uh, as you know, I found my way as to a secretary to a group of barristers. What did you see in that workplace that sparked an interest in law? Well, I was a secretary to three barristers and um, I typed their opinions and advices and I thought the work, um, what I was typing was interesting. That was really it. And there was a whole building of barristers called the Inns of Court And I was impressed with how they all seemed to get on and be so interested in what they were doing. It was obvious that um, it was something that was very, very much engaged them. And um, I observed what I later knew to be collegiality amongst the barristers, which I found attractive. We'll come back to that term, collegiality. So you decided 
to study law part-time, but you didn't go back to university. You did that through something which is no longer in existence in most parts of the country. You study part-time through the Barristers Board. How did that work? What What is mm. that? Well, I should say I thought about university, but um, the university wouldn't allow me to do the course full-time but working, so it would have taken eight years to have completed a law degree part-time and, of course, I thought I would have been an old woman by the time I'd finished it. So the alternative then was the Barristers Board, which people were still using, and it was a, a, a course that actually predated, as a method of qualifying as a barrister, it predated university degrees. And um, you didn't actually have lectures, but you determined the curriculum from the subjects that were set and from all the previous exam papers and basically had to teach yourself, you know, autodidact. But I had the benefit that I had um, by then a number of barristers who I could approach for assistance and they were very good to me. You complete this course very quickly and you're actually admitted to the bar at age 21, which was the minimum age requirement. And you go direct to the bar. You didn't become a solicitor. You go direct to I the bar. I worked in a law firm as a law clerk for a couple of years while I was studying. And then when you completed your studies, you, you went to the bar. I think you were one of three women at the Queensland Bar. In that, that year, in, in 1975. What was your experience like as a young woman in Queensland at the bar in the 1970s? I was quite aware that there were briefs which I didn't get and there were sometimes briefs which were delivered but then taken away when the clients found out that I was a woman. Um, there were some law firms who wouldn't brief women, they had a policy of not briefing women. But I took the view that as long as I was busy, I was, wasn't going to be too concerned with the work that I wasn't, that had been denied me. But the bar was incredibly supportive. Um, I got most of my work really from senior barristers suggesting to solicitors that they simply give me a go. And once you're seen in court and you seem to be doing okay, then word gets around and that was really how my uh, practice took off. Your career takes off. You decided to go back to university and you completed a Masters of Law at Cambridge University in England, which is where you met your husband, anthropologist uh, Michael Albrecht, and you convinced him to return to Australia with you. Now, I understand he started his career as a coal miner, age 15, in Lancashire. Yes, he followed his father. It was a, He was brought up in a, a mining town, St Helens, which is also famous for rugby league, of course. So he followed his father down, who went down the mine, and he went down the mine at 15, and then he went into police and then got a scholarship, home office scholarship, to Cambridge where he studied archaeology and anthropology. And as you've said, I... I met him, we were in the same college. And uh, I think uh, he was your rowing coach. He was the rowing coach of the women's boat for the college, yes. Now, in your address marking your retirement, you thanked your husband, quote, for the support and counsel I have always been able to rely upon, end quote. How important is the support of family to you? Oh, absolutely critical. I mean, being a barrister and then being a judge is a pretty all-consuming profession and then vocation. And um, their understanding of how consuming it can be and how sometimes you're, you're 
very busy and your your mind's not always with them. Um, so it's it's terribly important. Now, you return to Australia, your career keeps on progressing at a pace. You're appointed the first female QC in Queensland, Senior Council, Queen's Council in Queensland in 1987 at the very young age of 33. Six years later, in 1993, you're appointed, I think, the second female member of the Queensland Supreme Court. Yes, Margaret White was the first um, woman judge to the Supreme Court. You then moved to the Federal Court in 1994 and you were appointed to the High Court in 2007. A lot of firsts here. Can I get you to reflect on what it was like as the first QC and as what I imagine was the the only member of the Supreme Court of Queensland at the time. What was it like being a trailblazer? Well, being the first female QC, of course, I'm fairly sure I was regarded as a bit of a novelty. And uh, I think there was probably some diffidence in briefing a woman silk. It's a leadership role. My areas were very general, but sometimes involved important commercial cases. And But um, the solicitors seemed to bring the clients around. So I, I got the works, which was, which was good. But as I've said, Margaret White was on the Supreme Court when I joined it, so I was grateful for her company, although the male judges, of course, were very welcoming. So you're appointed to the High Court in 2007. In 2017, you're appointed Chief Justice after serving on the court for 10 years, the first woman to hold the position of Chief Justice of the High Court of Australia. Now, you mentioned the term collegiality before. There are seven members of the High Court and each are entitled to write their own separate decision, even if they largely agree with their brother and sister judges. You've always been a strong supporter of joint judgments. Why is that? I think if the court speaks with a a strong majority voice, or even better, with one voice, it gives certainty and clarity to the law. It, it allows the judges in the courts below and the practitioners to understand absolutely clearly what the court's saying, what the principle is being stated, instead of having to search through four, five, even seven judgments and try to ascertain for themselves what it is and wonder whether they've got it right. What the big main principle is. What, the, what we call the ratio of the case is. You said, quote, a single judgment of the court or of the majority carries great authority and instills confidence in that court's decisions, quote. And you've also said it also means there's no room to revisit it at a later date based on a dissent or a separate decision. So if there's one single joint judgment, everybody knows what the law is as opposed to trying to work their way through many different different decisions. And the other thing is that sometimes where they're actually agreeing in largely in the reasoning and outcome, multiple judgments uh, often result in delays in production of judgments. And one thing that we know modern courts strive for is efficiency. So I, I don't think multiple judgments have really very much going for them in terms of efficiency. You've said... Um quote, generally speaking, it isn't possible for appellate judges to write a comprehensive judgment in each and every case they hear, Mm. end of quote, but you're just saying it's just not practical um, and an efficient use of everybody's time to do that. That's right. Well, at least least where you um, 
are largely in agreement with with the rest of the court. It's it's simply a waste of time. Judges have big brains and sometimes big personalities and sometimes big egos. You've said you like joint judgments because it renders, quote, the author largely anonymous. It makes it easier to detect a clear ruling. I wouldn't say that rendering the author largely anonymous is a reason for a joint judgment. I'd put it the other way around. The, a judge who agrees to allow others to join in and effectively writes for others, for the other judges, is agreeing to be an anonymous judge because instead of their judgment coming out in their name, it's going to be a judgment of a number of people and the author, unless their style is obvious, the author won't be obvious. So that's something you give up the ownership in a way of of the judgment. I'm wondering if we can talk to the practices or processes in the High Court that facilitate judicial deliberation and judicial cooperation. How does it work after you've heard arguments? Right, well, I've spoken publicly about this before. Following judgments, we, we have meetings before we hear appeals, but they're they're usually only very preliminary discussions, usually to, to identify any procedural problems that we think there might be or areas where we think we can encourage more argument from the parties. The most important meeting in terms of decision-making or meetings, if necessary, is held after the hearing of an appeal and... Um, We'll usually identify the issues and and then discuss the arguments and everyone has an opportunity to discuss what their thinking is on the matter. And, of course, we're looking at the same time for whether or not there's, there's commonality in our approach. You're looking for a majority in the end, of course, because you're, you want to know who's going to write what's called a first draft and... That's usually taken from the majority. If if people are still largely, if the judges are largely undecided or have some concerns that they need to think through, quite often we'll have a second meeting, and someone might do some particular work on on that area. So it's a, it's just um, an informal. It's not a structured. It's an informal process where we are trying to tease out the issues and see where our commonality of uh, decision-making lies. Look, I I was fascinated in your address at the ceremonial sitting marking your retirement. You said, I was especially proud during my time as Chief Justice when the court was able to speak with one voice in some difficult and important matters, despite some colleagues having held different views in the past. So I'm, I'm really fascinated, presumably you're having these conversations where you are trying to tease through the the, the positions people have and perhaps even convince. Yes. That was actually a particular reference to a case in criminal law um, which was a very important aspect of criminal law and unfortunately in, in the first decision there were, I think, seven judgments produced and it was just not clear what judges hearing criminal cases uh, should do, how they should direct the jury. And then the court, during my time as Chief Justice, came back and revisited it and some judges made the decision to adopt a majority view so that clarity could be given to judges running criminal trials and we produced one judgment of the entire court. 
Are you talking about Bauer and We're talking New South about Wales? Bauer and the, the case that preceded it, which created the problem, was HML. Yeah, and, and just for listeners, um, that's around tendency evidence in sexual assault cases where it's about evidence of other matters which are not actually before the court, right? Yes. Uh, yeah. This preference for collegiality and consensus where possible doesn't mean you believe that strong opinions should not be expressed. In the Love and Tom's High Court decision, the question was whether Indigenous Australians who are not Australian citizens could be deported. And the majority found that they could not be aliens under the constitution. But you were in the minority and you found that, quote, such an approach would involve matters of values and policies. It would usurp the role of the parliament, end of quote. And, you know, strong words, right? And you expect your fellow judges to also argue and put their positions robustly as they see it. That, that's the role of a judge as you see it. And robustly but respectfully. That's been a central value of your court. Well, I think it's been a central value of the High Court for a very long time and of co- other courts in Australia. You're listening to The Law Report on Radio National with me, Damien Carrick, and it's my great pleasure today to be in conversation with uh, Chief Justice of the High Court of Australia, Susan Kiefel, who steps down on the 5th of November. Chief Justice, in a speech to the Australian Women Lawyers Conference in 2022, you reflected on how the profession has changed since you first became a lawyer. In that speech, you said, quote, There have been considerable advances, but men continue to have more opportunities than women, despite the number of female students outstripping the number of men. End of quote. Why do you think that is? Well, I think probably the most obvious is that women quite often have assumed caring positions in family. So I think that holds them back, particularly at the bar. Perhaps perhaps that's not so much so in law firms who are able to provide maternity leave and encourage the career progression of career. But but I think that must in part be, be it. It doesn't explain all of it, of course, and one can only assume that there's still a residual reluctance to to brief women as much as, as easily as, as men. Structural discrimination? Could be, could be. You said in that speech that you asked your court staff to collate the figures on the number of women who have appeared as barristers or as counsel before the High Court of Australia. Tell me about that survey and what your office found. Well, I don't have the figures right in front of me, but it was a, it was a very short survey and it's probably, for that reason, isn't authoritative or, or correct, but... Um, I was looking to see whether there had been much of an increase in the number of women appearing before the court because I had the impression that I was seeing quite a lot more women in the period from when I joined the court in 2007 and the period over which the survey was done, which was in the period up to my... um, and during my chief justiceship. But I, from recollection, the increase was from something like 14% to 24%. And I'd expected it to be greater than that. But as I said, that's still an improvement. 
I think the research focused on two blocks, 2007 to 2009, 14% of, of Barristers, but only 5.6% of senior counsel. And then in a 2019 to 2021 block, yet yeah, 24% of people overall, but only 13% of senior counsel were women. And I think also there was a, a finding that women appeared more often in family law, criminal law, and public law cases, and not very often in commercial law cases. So you're disappointed by those figures? Yes, I'd hoped them. I'd hoped that they were better than that. But I think the number of women silks who are available to do work in the High Court has some been somewhat denuded because so many women silks were have been appointed almost immediately. This is from the 1990s. Have been appointed almost immediately. They took silk to the bench. So um, the bar has in a way, been denied quite a number of women, their judges, rather than having remained at the bar and having had careers which would take them to the High Court. And I said in my speech, at retirement speech, that women of my age in the 90s and onwards, I think, felt a sense of duty to accept appointment to the judiciary because it was thought to be beneficial to women in the profession and to society as a whole to see women in positions of authority. But I hope that today young women silks don't feel that same sense of duty and that they feel that they have the liberty to stay at the bar and pursue those careers through the appellate courts and into the high court and um, enjoy the leadership role and, and the important mentoring and role models that they can be for other young lawyers, including women. So they can be leaders in every part of the profession. That's right. Coming back to your speech of 2022 to the Australian Women Lawyers Conference, you spoke of a second survey that you'd done of your women associates. These are sort of young lawyers who work specifically with judges uh, doing legal research and administrative kind of roles. You conducted an informal survey about their experiences. What did you ask them and what did you learn? I think you've had 43 associates, 33 have been women who've gone on to have very successful legal careers. What did you ask them? I just asked them what was their experience at the bar and did they feel that they had been treated equally? And sadly, a few, not all, but a few, came back and said that they did not feel that they had been treated by solicitors in the same way that um, men were treated, male barristers. Does that disappoint you? Yes, of course. Yes, of course. I wouldn't have thought that should really be happening at all today. And what do you think are the reasons for that continuing? I really don't know. I don't know how. We wouldn't have thought that in this day and age that any distinction can be drawn between men and women in the profession. In June 2020, the High Court of Australia revealed an independent investigation which upheld uh, sexual harassment complaints brought by six former judges' associates against Justice Dyson Hayden, who had retired from the High Court back in 2013. Now, in a statement from your office, you wrote, quote, The findings are of extreme concern to me, my fellow justices, our chief executive and the staff of the court. We're ashamed that this could have happened at the High Court of Australia. 
we have made a sincere apology to the six women whose complaints were borne out. We know it would have been difficult to come forward. Their accounts of their experiences at the time have been believed. I have appreciated the opportunity to talk with a number of women about their experiences and to apologise to them in person. I have also valued their insights and suggestions for change that they have shared with with the court. Uh, End of quote. The independent investigation made six recommendations, all of which were adopted and acted upon. And just one other quote. We have moved to do all we can to make sure the experiences of these women will not be repeated. There is no place for sexual harassment in any workplace. We have strengthened our policies and training to make clear the importance of a respectful workplace at the court. And we have made sure there is both support and confidential avenues for complaint if anything like this were to happen again, end quote. Now, I should mention Justice Hayden has always denied the allegations and said if he caused any offence, he apologised. Now, now, Chief Justice Kiefel, your leadership in dealing with the issue was widely lauded. Obviously, this is a matter of huge, enormous public interest. Now, in the immediate lead up to this interview, you made it clear you don't want to speak to the particulars of this event, but you are prepared to offer your thoughts on how the approach of the High Court has had a broader impact in the judiciary and beyond. What are those thoughts? More broadly, I think it brought attention to a topic, sexual harassment, which has not been the subject of proper discussion in our society. Indeed, it has been avoided to date. Uh, Women have had to tolerate it for a long time. More particularly, it led to all of the courts in Australia and the profession adopting policies about it and providing sensible and effective means by which complaints could be made and dealt with. And those processes have now been broadened to conduct affecting everyone, such as bullying. So workplace policies now, I think, are much more protective and thoughtful and aspire to creating workplaces, uh, environments in which people can feel comfortable working and in which people are respected. At the state and territory level, most jurisdictions have judicial complaints commissions, but currently there's no equivalent at the federal level. The federal government is planning on creating a federal body. Should the High Court be included? Should a judicial complaints commission be able to investigate High Court justices? Well, discussions about the establishment of a judicial commission and which courts and whether the High Court should be included amongst them are continuing. So I think it's preferable if I left, leave that to the incoming Chief Justice to, to deal with um, in terms of conversations with government and with, with other courts. I'd like to talk about your contribution or, or your legacy. As the first female Chief Justice of Australia, what do you think that has meant for the law and the legal system and for lawyers? Well, I would hope that um, it encourages women to to consider judicial office and to know that that there are no limits to to how far in judicial office they, they might proceed. But 
I don't think, speaking for myself, that I would be any different from any other Chief Justice. You simply try to do the role of Chief Justice as best you can. Chief Justice Susan Kiefel, thank you very much for speaking to The Law Report. Thank you, Damien. That's the Law Report for this week. Don't forget you can follow us on the ABC Listen app. A big thank you to producer Christina Kukolia and also to sound engineer this week, Tim Simons. I'm Damien Carrick. Talk to you next time with more law. Listener.